Traditionally, the gift for 75th anniversaries is diamonds. So my gift to you are two films about the search for precious jewels. Yes, it's time for episode 75 of Pop Art, the podcast where we find the pop culture in art and the art in pop culture. On Pop Art, my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your cops. What the hell do they want? I haven't done anything lately. Host Howard Kastner. Today, I am happy to welcome back as my guest, Donald McKinney, who has chosen as his selection the 1980s tongue-in-cheek postmodern Romancing the Stone, while I have chosen the 1950s MGM epic King Solomon's Mines, both about a dangerous search for a lost treasure. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. So to begin, Donald, why don't you remind our audience something about yourself? Sure. Again, thanks for having me, Howard. My name's Donald, and I like long walks on the beach, uh, romantic candlelight dinners. <laughs> Seriously, though, I do a podcast every week. It's called The Real Short Box. It's a comic book and pop culture TV movie type podcast that I do with a few of my uh, comrades. I also occasionally dabble in screenwriting and web series content. Created a web series, The Blue Beetle, Ted Court Returns. A few short films. Uh, I have a few more actually coming out, hopefully relatively soon. That sounds great. With that, let's get to your selection, and that is Romancing the Stone. First, some information about the film. Romancing the Stone is a 1984 action-adventure romantic comedy released in 1984. It was directed by Robert Zemeckis, written by Diane Thomas, and produced by Michael Douglas. It stars Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, Danny DeVito, Zach Norman, Alfonso Arrow, Manuel Ojeda, Holland Taylor, and Mary Ellen Trainer. Joan Wilder is an incredibly successful author of romance novels. Ironically, she has no romance in her personal life. Then her sister calls from Colombia, being held captive by people looking for the map to a priceless emerald. But the map leading to the jewel has been sent to Joan, so Joan must go to Colombia to turn over the map and rescue her sister. But along the way, she is waylaid by others also wanting the map, and then reluctantly helped by an adventurer who is only in it for the money. Or is he? Before beginning with the film proper, we might want to talk about these kind of romances, which during the age of Hollywood, as we'll see with the next film, King Solomon's Minds, were very, very popular. They were often given names like exotic romances or exotic melodramas because they took place in, well, what were considered exotic locations like Africa, but also a large number of them are located in the Caribbean or the South Seas. So what do you think is the appeal to them? The unknown, really, particularly something like King Solomon's Mine, the deepest, darkest Africa, so that the areas that people haven't gone or there isn't much tourism about it, that leaves it open to a lot of interpretation, a lot of strange interpretation, actually. I think you sit the nail on the head for me. They allow people to go places they would never go in real life or couldn't afford to or wouldn't even want to. And then there yeah. were romances, at least in the movies, in order to attract both sexes. It might be noted there is no female character going along for the excursion of the book, King Solomon's Minds. Women were added to increase the audience. And they seem to have dropped off. One reason might be, well, there really aren't very many unknown locations anymore, and they aren't particularly exotic anymore. 
Now it's more about, I would say, working harder on the characterization and less on the locations, but also making it more humorous, too, within those locations. A lot of people know these areas now. Making humor based around that is important as well. I think alluding to what you said at first, movies now tend to be more what they call travel porn, whereas <laughs> yeah. these made in the golden age tended to be more mysterious, mm-hmm. wild wildlife and hunting, local natives. These films were taken from a very white European viewpoint. It's also a little hard to make movies about these exotic locations that are from a white European viewpoint. Another thing that can make it a bit more difficult for these kind of movies that we're talking about today, what the characters do in both films are actually exploiting local antiquities. Yeah, absolutely. I think in comparison with the two, one more so than the other. Even Indiana Jones has been getting some pushback because basically he just goes off to steal these things from another country. Well, they belong in a museum. Yes. (laughs) In an American museum. Yeah, not just in a museum, but in an American museum. Why did you choose this film? I think this film came out in 84. I was five years old. I was probably six or seven when I first saw it on VHS. My parents rented it and was like, it's okay for him to watch. There wasn't anything too crazy in it, except for the alligator or crocodile scene at the end. Beyond that, it was just a lot of fun. I enjoyed that kind of thing when I was little. I liked pirates and adventuring, and I would go out in the woods and stuff from a very small town. Your imagination had to carry you in a lot of ways. Watching something like that was like, whoa, this is so cool. Seeing Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner work together, even though they started off hating each other, was so fun, funny as a little kid. And even as an adult now, rewatching it over and over and over again, it's a very enjoyable romantic adventure film. Anybody can find something to love or enjoy in it. So uh, it was a no-brainer for me for a 75th anniversary thing that you're doing. Well, you mentioned the relationship between the characters of Colton and Joan Wilder. That's often what we call a Beatrice and Benedict relationship from William Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, which is about two characters who hate each other so much, it's very obvious that they really love each other. And it's only a matter of making them realizing it. Yeah. I hate you. I hate you more. And the next thing you know, they're making out. Right. (laughs) I found a lot of really fun scenes in there. One of them was the mudslide scene. I can't get enough of that. More films should have random mudslides in it. You know, we need them at Six Flags in Disneyland. When you're waiting in line and it's 100 degrees out, a mudslide would be very nice. I first saw it when it opened. I thought it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. My main issue, and we'll get into that more later, is Michael Douglas. Though this time I didn't really mind him as much. He's simply not my idea, as well as a number of people at the time, of a romantic leading man. He seemed miscast, but this time really wasn't bothered at all. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. movie. It's often clever, and it's very postmodern, which we'll get into later, because I think that's significant in how it was not well-received by critics. The audience loved it, but the critics were much more lukewarm. You mentioned one of your favorite scenes, which was the mudslide scene. Do you have any other scenes that you really liked? When they go to that small town, they meet the bell maker. I believe his name is Juan. <laughs> Him and the town's not very neighborly, so to speak. They're all supposedly drug runners. And when Jack mentions Joan's name, Joan Wilder, how are you going to get us out of this one? The bellmaker loses his mind. I'm a super fan. 
I just thought that was hilarious. In this small town, this guy's reading her romance novels and reading them to the townsfolk, and they all love her. So then when Zolo, who's the major bad guy in the film, when he and his military comes after them, they take Pepe, which is Juan's little mule is what he calls it. And it's basically a Jeep, just really fast and really cool. Escape out on that. They ramp up over a creek bed and are able to thwart the military because they block the ramp from them being able to go over it and ramp up over the creeks. That was a lot of fun. Another scene I really loved where they're, again, where they're being chased by Zolo and there's the old bridge. Joan Wilder decides that she's tired of getting shot at and she's going to try to cross this bridge over this huge gulch, which surely means death if she fell. As one of the boards breaks, she's holding onto a vine and she swings across then this entire canyon and lands on the other side on her ass. Jack turns around and he sees that she's gone and he's like, oh, maybe I should try that. So then he grabs a vine and swings across. Of course, it doesn't work out quite as well for him. He slams into the side of the wall. And there's a ton of others, but those two came to mind right off. I certainly agree with you about the scene with Juan. That is certainly one of the cleverest twists in the movie. Then when he opens the door and you come into this incredibly beautiful and very well-designed home, Mm -hmm. you're in this what looks like a very stereotypical town, how we think of Colombia and South American cities being. And you open this door and you find out, no, he has all the modern conveniences and it's all very much up to date. Everything was just facade. I also love at the ending where Jack is debating, do I get the alligator? Do I go after Joan? And the alligator just won't cooperate by getting caught. Yeah. (laughs) And he's just pulling on that tail and saying, you're not getting away. That was very, very funny. When he was reaching for the gun and he couldn't quite get it, had to let go in order to to use the gun to save her. And and then he goes to shoot and the gun doesn't work. (laughs) And then by the time he scales this wall to come to her rescue, she's already basically defeated the guy. Are you a fan of the director, Robert Zemeckis? I suspect I know your answer. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, of course. It wasn't more than, what, a year later, I think, or maybe two, he did uh, Back to the Future. The guy's had a, a hell of a career. He's directed some really great films, a few clunkers here and there, but overall, he's a really great director that I think is extremely underrated when you look at the breadth of his work. Everybody thought, oh, who's a great director? Steven Spielberg. Well, in my eyes, Zemeckis is right up there. I think Zemeckis's problems is that his first two films, which I think are two of his best, outside Roger Rabbit might be his best, flopped. That was used cars and I want to hold your hand. Whereas Steven Spielberg's second film was Jaws. That was such a huge success. But Zemeckis had problems making go of it early on because they were flopping. They weren't connecting to the audience. And this one was his big breakthrough. Mm -hmm. No one thought this was going to be a success. Everybody thought this was going to flop. In a screening of a rough cut, the producers thought it was so bad that they removed Robert Zemeckis from working on Cocoon. And and then this film came out. It was a huge success. He was able to do the Back to the Future movies as well as Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Forrest Gump. Though lately, I think his career has a bit stumbled. And I don't even know what he's done lately. And I don't think he makes great movies. I mean, he's not Ingmar Bergman. He's not Kofsky or Fellini or, you know, John Ford or John Huston. But he makes excellent pop culture movies. He's one of the best directors and filmmakers of those kinds of movies. I like them and they bring a lot of pleasure to a lot of people. There is one quote at uh, the University of Southern California. He met a fellow student, writer Bob Gale, and Gale said, the graduate students at USC had this veneer of intellectualism. 
So Bob and I gravitated toward one another because we wanted to make Hollywood movies. We weren't interested in the French New Wave. We were interested in Clint Eastwood and James Bond and Walt Disney because that's how we grew up. I watched Used Cars not long ago. Man, such a funny, <laughs> silly film. I loved it. So funny. Yeah. I'd never seen it before. Oh, uh, yes. Nor did I really know about it. I think I saw it in a video store once on the shelf. I was just like, oh, this is just some older classic film, whatever. And I passed it over, but it was really something. I think it was a, a little bit ahead of its time, to be honest. And let's not forget some of the other films that he's done. He's done some really eclectic stuff, The Public Eye and Mars Needs Moms. But he's also done Castaway and Forrest Gump. And while I hate Forrest Gump, and that's the I story know. for another time. <laughs> Castaway, I'm not going to argue with that. Good. Okay, good. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you mentioned that before. Polar Express. Beowulf, working in that type of technology. He's always been one to push the boundaries of, to further the storytelling. I've always appreciated that. Well, I think you're right. In many ways, other than the enjoyment of his films, he's most known for his innovation in special effects, like inserting computer graphics into live footage in Back to the Future Part 2 and Forrest Gump, using hand-drawn animation with footage in New Frame Roger Rabbit, and as you mentioned, Polar Express, the performance capture techniques. Critic and historian David Thompson wrote that no other contemporary director has used special effects to more dramatic and narrative purpose. And I think that's true. It's not there just for special effects sake. It's very important to the story. It doesn't distract so much as it enhances the ideas within the film, which I appreciate. The screenplay was by Diane Thomas. And unfortunately, this was the only screenplay of hers to be produced in her lifetime because she died in a car crash in a year and a half after the film was released. Um, she did co-write Steven Spielberg's 1989 film, Always. She finished a draft of the third Indiana Jones movie, which was a haunted mansion movie. But that approach was finally decided against and the movie was never made. But here we're going to get into the critical reaction to it. First, though, what did you think of the screenplay? Sharp. I thought it was a lot of fun. The way it's written, it really lays out this narrative for two people to really get to know and fall for each other. So you could tell that there's a lot of romantic inclinations there within her writing that she wanted to nail home. It wasn't too over the top. Sometimes when you're watching a film and you're like, oh, OK, it's been five minutes and they're completely in love. This is ridiculous. I never felt that way in this film. I always felt the characters had time to get to know each other. They went through so much together, kind of bonded them for life. That's really hard to do in a screenplay. It did not get all that great of views at the time. Roger Ebert did like it. He called it a silly, high-spirited chase picture, saying he greatly enjoyed the film's imaginative perils, caliber cast of villains, and believable relationship between its two lead characters. But Time Magazine called the film just a distaff Raiders ripoff, and another one compared it to Saturday morning serials that you would see at the theater. And this, I think, is why they didn't really appreciate the movie. They made a mistake. It's not Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's comparable to Raiders to some degree, but only because they came out at the same time. Diane Thomas had written the screenplay a few years earlier, around 1979, than when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out. She was not influenced by Raiders in writing the screenplay. In reverse, Raiders of the Lost Ark was being written at this time before it came out. So they were both developing screenplays quite separately without any knowledge of the other one. But I don't think the inspiration for this movie is Saturday morning serials like Indiana Jones and Star Wars definitely were. That was their inspiration. I think even George Lucas and Steven Spielberg said, yes, that we are taking these serial movies and making A-list movies. 
What she is going after are these exotic melodramas and romance novels. Romance novels had always been very big, and these exotic melodramas were very big in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. It's actually more a postmodern comment, not on movies that inspired Raiders. It's a comment on movies like King Solomon's Mines. That's her Mm -hmm. source material. So since it came out at the same time as Raiders, all the critics said, oh, it's just a Raiders movie, and it's not. Yeah, I definitely agree there. It does harken back to some some adventure-type films. There are a lot of similarities between the two, for sure. And it's very postmodern, because not only is it a very tongue-in-cheek comment on these books and these exotic melodramas, it's at the same time an exciting and effective melodrama in its own right. You can both laugh at the source material, while at the same time having fun with this movie, which works on its own terms. So mm-hmm. they're also winking at the audience, saying, we all get the joke. Yeah, I, there's a lot of that just within the character of Joan Wilder pointing that out, but yet developing new archetype, new type of strength within these characters, particularly with the female characters. Watching her grow as a character, somebody that wouldn't want to go out of their house, their idea of romance is cat food on a plate with some candles with their kitty while they drink some small bottles of whiskey or whatever it was. That's their idea of a crazy time. They don't want to go out and meet men and an enclosed introverted lifestyle, but writes these big, epic, sprawling, extroverted lifestyle stories. And then we see her come out of the stories and build and make her own. And it takes this big, sprawling adventure and it takes her sister being kidnapped in order to do that. And it's such a fun ride. Bring up this character. This was a difficult time from the 60s to the 90s and how women were portrayed on film. You know, the 1970s and the 1980s had some of the most misogynistic portrayals of women in movies, in films like MASH, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Network, and Fatal Attraction. There was pushback with such portrayals as Star Wars, Aliens, and Halloween. But you're right, here we have a female-driven adventure movie, which is rare in and of itself. And she's not a total damsel in distress, much less so than we'll see in the next film. There's a reductiveness to it because her main issue is that she doesn't have a man in her life and women are somehow incomplete without having a man in their life though she's this hugely successful author and they don't really have a reason why there isn't a man in her life though i think it's necessary because there's no place for a character to really go unless Mm -hmm. she's set up that way at first she is kind of annoying complaining about everything but you know you're right she's also very brave just to come down there in the first place she's very determined she's very smart comes wilder and wilder as the show goes on she comes into her own right where she does things to even save colton for example it's sort of accidental she says i'm tired of this i'm going to cross this bridge and ends up finding a way to get away from all these people yeah, and, and talk about a fun journey with side characters. The gentleman that played Solo was fantastic. He was a great villain. And then Ralphie, I believe was his name, played by Danny DeVito. Not a bumbling idiot, but an accidental tourist, so to speak. He just gets into so much trouble just following her immediately because she gets on the wrong bus. And he has to take on then this whole journey of finding her using this tiny little car. And this tiny little car becomes such an integral part of the story. It's almost a character of itself. There's a lot of these moments and a lot of chances for her to stand up to these types of characters to show her strength and her growth. At the beginning, she's more cowarding, introverted, and somewhat scared. And, and naturally, we as viewers would to chuckle and be like, oh, that's ridiculous. I wouldn't be scared of that. Yeah, you oh, no, probably we, would. I wouldn't even do it. I'd call the police. <laughs> no way. I'm just going to get on a plane <laughs> to go to Columbia. 
And it's funny, as you watch, you'll see some of these little differences, the way she dresses, how she lets her hair down. The perception of her starts to change from Jack's standpoint, and we see that also as the audience members. Well, you mentioned her hair coming down, and that's one thing she has in common with Deborah Carr in King Solomon's Mines. One of the symbols of their changing is when they redo their hair. In mm-hmm. King Solomon's Mines, she cuts her hair because it's just so incredibly impractical. It's jump- interesting to me how it was like a straight long cut, and then she cut it, and it's curly red. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. Did she have a curling iron? Did I miss something? I'll have a little bit of trivia about that when we get to King Solomon's Minds, because you're right. (laughs) You weren't the only one to notice and comment on that. And I do like Danny DeVito in that he keeps trying to be part of this plot, but he always ends up just being along for the ride. As much as he tries, he never seems to have anything to do with the plot. It just keeps overwhelming him. And I love the little scene when they're in the town and he has to call Ira, Zach Norman, Mm -hmm. his partner, and tell him that he completely lost her. He turns around and he sees her come out of the hotel. And I think he says to Ira, you are the luckiest man in the world. The only way he got there is because Zolo commandeered the vehicle. And then in another breath, he got his vehicle stolen again because he was sleeping in the back. Jack and Joan got inside of it and drove off. And so, yeah, he's definitely along for the ride. He's, he's a very reactive character. Yeah, he tries to be proactive. And the comedy comes out of the fact that he just can't be and he just ends up being reactive. You did mention the actors. What did you think? Of both Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. I thought they were great. I have literally zero complaints. First time I watched it, I thought they were fantastic. I saw the chemistry. I felt the chemistry. Uh, Even as a kid, he does a great job of being kind of a bumbling adventurer. He often reminds me of Jack Burton from Big Trouble in Little China. In a lot of ways, he's a little more competent. He's uh, skilled with a rifle, skilled with a knife, uh, with hunting, fire making and stuff like that. He portrayed them effortlessly. Again, with Kathleen Turner, she really shined. In fact, she was probably my first on-screen crush, her in this. She was so cute and lovable and fun. She doesn't quite look the same now. None of uh, us do, Donald. None of us do. (laughs) That's very true. Still remarkable in every role that she picks up. When I first saw it, Michael Douglas just didn't work for me. This time around, I enjoyed him. He doesn't hurt the movie. I'm perfectly fine with him now. But I agree about Kathleen Turner. I don't think her career went the way it should have. A lot of us at the time when she started out making movies were kind of frustrated that she wasn't getting the recognition she deserved. The critics seemed to like her more than Hollywood did. She couldn't get an Oscar nomination to save her soul except for one film, Peggy Sue Got Married, and she deserved many more. She really made her mark with Body Double, then did a series of excellent movie portrayals, and yes, she still gives great performances. She did have problems on the the making the film. She said that, I remember having terrible arguments with Robert Zemeckis during Romancing. He's a film school grad, fascinated by cameras and effects. I never felt that he knew what I was having to do to adjust my acting to some of his damn cameras. Sometimes he puts you in ridiculous postures. And I'd say, that is not helping me. This is not the way I like to work. Thank you. And I can see that when... You have everything worked out and you think you have this character. And then the director says, oh, bend over, do this, do this, and 45 degree angle. And it can be very frustrating to have to fit that Mm -hmm. into your character. Later on, too, there was some pain management issues. She was having a lot of uh, health problems, if I recall. And that put a crimp in her career as well. I heard it was some type of arthritic pain, early arthritis. 
The cinematography was by Dean Cundy. Cinematography is great. It didn't make me feel like I was so much as watching a movie as I was being part of the adventure, particularly with like the mudslide. How they did that, I thought was so wonderful. It reminds me a lot of the slide in the Goonies when they're going down this water slide to fall into the big pool of water where the pirate ship is. Only in this one, it's a big puddle of mud at the bottom. She falls in first and he comes in face first after her. To see stuff like that and the chase scene you know, with Pepe and in the bridge scene, and I think that was very lovingly shot, romantically shot. There's a lot of true romance in the way that they were able to shoot this. It will be interesting to see how well he is regarded in the future. When it comes to that, the issue may be that he worked perhaps too much on genre films. He started out with low-budget horror films. He was really admired for what he did with Halloween and how he shot that. That was highly influential, and he did other John Carpenter films, like The Fog thing, Escape from New York, other Halloweens, and then the Robert Zemeckis films. He is an excellent cinematographer, but we'll see whether he is considered one of the top ones down the line. And the music is by Alan Silvestri, who has a very big cult following. People seem to really like his music a lot. I need to listen to it a little more. But yeah, I mean, he did the Judge Dredd soundtrack, so what's not to love? Somehow I knew that would be one that you would go to. He <laughs> <laughs> also did Back to the Future, Predator, Forrest Gump, who framed Roger Rabbit. He did those last two Avengers films, Endgame and... Infinity War. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I remember something about that. Everybody just assumed that it would be Hans Zimmer or whatever, but there are other capable composers out there that can do a fantastic job, and I think he's one of them. He's, obviously, he's hit or miss sometimes, depending on, on the work and the understanding of the work, but for the most part, yeah, he's, he's very competent. With that, here's some more information about the movie. It cost $10 million to make and made $115.1 million at the box office. Not too shabby. It got an Academy Award nomination for Best Film Editing for Don Camburn and Frank Morris. It won the Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture Musical or Comedy. And Kathleen Turner won the Golden Globe Award for Best Actress Musical or Comedy. It was followed by a 1985 sequel titled The Jewel of the Nile. The opening music is the title theme from the movie How the West Was Won. The phrase romancing the stone is a piece of jeweler's jargon, referring to a step in preparing a gem for use in jewelry. It's part of the process in turning a stone into a piece of jewelry that's attractive and saleable and marketable. It's a nice double meaning to the title. Yeah. The film was originally to be filmed in Colombia, where the story takes place. But according to IMDb, when that country suffered an increasing number of American kidnappings, they thought it might be better to move it someplace else. Then U.S. President Ronald Reagan viewed this at Camp David in May 1984. The treasure map that is integral to the movie was designed by puzzle columnist Dr. Cripton. The scene where Joan offers to pay Colton in traveler's checks, and he asks whether they are American Express, is an in-joke about the American Express commercials featuring Carl Malden, who had co-starred with Douglas in the streets of San Francisco. The novelization of Romancing the Stone was credited to Joan Wilder, although along with the novelization of the sequel movie, Jewel of the Nile, it was actually written by Catherine Lanigan. There was supposed to be a sequel to Jewel of the Nile with Simakis at the head and with Douglas Turner and DeVito all returning, going to be called the Crimson Eagle, but it never made it past the development stage. It was supposed to be about Jack Colton and his partner, Joan Walder, taking their teenage children to Thailand, where they would find themselves blackmailed into stealing a priceless statue. With that, let's go to my selection, and that is King Solomon's Mines. 
First, some information about the film. King Solomon's Minds is a Technicolor adventure film released in 1950. It is directed by Compton Bennett and Andrew Martin and written by Helen Deutsch, adapted from the novel of the same name by Henry Ryder Haggard. It stars Deborah Carr, Stuart Granger, Richard Carlson, Hugo Haas, Lowell Gilmer, Mercy, Syriac, Sekoyongo, and Baziga. I probably got most of those wrong, but those are the African actors in the movie. In 1987, British East Africa, which is Kenya today, an upper-class English woman seeks out local misanthrope and chauvinist Alan Quatermain as a safari guide to find her husband who has gone missing while searching for a diamond mine in unexplored territory. Quatermain thinks it's a waste of time but can't turn down the money being offered. He also thinks it's foolish to take along a woman, but she insists and so their adventure begins, complicated by local tribes, dangerous animals, and a growing attraction between the two of them. So as I said, I think Romancing the Stone is actually not a registered little stock ripoff, but a postmodern commentary whose source material is movies like King Solomon's Minds. And I thought it might be interesting to compare those two movies, how one comments on the other. We know that they build upon it more, develop the female character more in Romancing the Stone. My big complaint with films like King Solomon's Minds, they don't allow much growth within the character of the lead lady. These characters seem extremely proactive, but then when you look at the the more uh, uh, microcosmic type situation, the lead lady, she's very reactive in a lot of ways. And it's not till later that there's any type of strength within her characters. But I do find that that is the way that it starts out with Joan Wilder, too. So when you're comparing that, both of them start out very meek and scared of everything at first, very timid, and then they start to get stronger with her over time. Joan far surpasses the character of the lady in King Solomon's Mind. But there are a lot of comparisons and a lot of similarities, too. They go on this adventure. Upon the insistence of the woman in King Solomon's mind, she's trying to get to her husband. She wants to find him because he went missing in the deepest, darkest jungle of Africa. She wants to hire the best, and that is Alan Quartermain. What she offers him was no pittance. It wasn't any small amount. It was 5,000 pounds. Of- that day. I'm not yeah. even sure how much that would be today, but it's quite yeah. possibly 500000 to a million dollars in today's. And that's not even to find him just to say, yes, he will go and to go with her, whether they succeed or not. If she decided to turn back, he could still keep that 5,000 pounds, which I well, thought was already, great. He already has it. She had to pay him up front. And then I'll give you 500 pounds in addition upon our return. Jeez, this is a win-win. I have a kid in England I want to send the money to. He wanted yeah. it at a time because in case they die on the way, mm-hmm. his son still has that money. It's- the adventure itself, there's some similarities there, although different ways. There are snake scenes uh, in, in, in King Solomon's mind, just like there were in Romancing the Stone, which shows that the male is there to help the female to protect her and to be the protector of the trip and the journey, both what they were hired to do. Also, the daringness of the characters in this one, both of them willing to throw their lives on the line to further the journey, no matter the ending itself. There's quite a lot of parallels. Yeah, and and there's a lot of differences, too. Romance in the Stone also makes fun of these characters as well. In King Solomon's Minds, the European characters are rather noble. They're very serious. They are the representative of the English middle and upper classes. Whereas in Romancing the Stone, she's this romance novelist, and he's this con man who is sometimes wanted by the police. There already, she's making fun of the kinds of characters 
that are in these films. But you're a big fan of the 1985 version with Richard Chamberlain and Sharon Stone, which I have not seen, but I understand it's actually more like romancing the stone. 100%. In fact, my mom was watching the 80s version of King Solomon's Mind, and she said, why didn't he choose this one? <laughs> and I said, well, it's not very highbrow, Mom. It's a canon film, for starters, so let's just go there. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. Sharon Stone is a very reactionary character. She gets herself into so many complicated situations that you get tired of her yelling his name, Quartermain, Quartermain, <laughs> because you know that she's in trouble and he has to come to her rescue. And that is where nine out of ten times the humor comes from. Sometimes him being cocky and thinking he's got it in hand and then it really not being in hand at all. The story's pretty solid. It's just cheeky fun. It's just a popcorn flick if there ever was one. Young me loved it. Rewatched it as an adult. It's still fun. Well, there's a quote. Professional critics at the time the 1985 version came out pointed out that it wasn't nearly as good as the Stuart Ranger version of the same movie while failing to acknowledge that it wasn't supposed to be as good and at no point took itself seriously as a movie. So this was the first time you saw the 1950s version of King Solomon's Mines. Mm -hmm. I take it you're not a big fan of the movie. No. <laughs> I didn't care for it. I got very bored. And normally with older films, there's something there to hold my attention. I thought the budding romance between the two was interesting, but I didn't feel, feel that connection like I did in Romancing the Stone. It was just, oh my God, we've been through some really effed up stuff by nature. We now have to be together. This is who we are now. It felt awkward, and they didn't explain at first the deal with her husband, that she didn't really love him. We don't know much about him beyond that he was her husband, and he didn't have the money in the relationship she did, and that's why he was doing what he was doing. And then the way it ended was just so absolutely ridiculous. I could have cared less who won the fight between the tribesmen at that point. I would have just gotten the hell out of there, not go back with them with a 50-50 shot of being okay with this guy you've been traveling with this whole time says that he's the rightful heir to the throne of this tribe that was good and now gone bad because his, I think his cousin or brother or something had taken over. The good guy wins. And that the end of the movie. Even then I was like, how do they think this is an appropriate ending? I just didn't get it. And I didn't buy the romance. I didn't particularly like Alan Quartermain, the actor that played him. I wasn't a fan. Um, so I, she was great. He just came off so arrogant in just the way he talked. Not what he said, but how he said it really bothered me. But I, again, I can see why you chose it to be comparable with uh, Romance in the Stone. I was going to say, don't hold back. Tell us how you really feel. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think either of us are particularly enamored of this film. I first saw it on TV back I probably when I was in high school. I barely remember it today. I think I enjoyed it at the time, though. Exotic romances and exotic melodrama movies, they've never been really my favorite. They're made for people to go places that they couldn't in real life, but I never really wanted to go to the places in these movies. It's enjoyable enough, but it's just a well-made programmer. It was a prestige picture that MGM put a lot of money and publicity into, and it was a big, big hit. You make some good points. I never really felt these people were in that much danger. For example, mm -hmm. when they cross the desert, we see them start, we see a couple of scenes in the desert, and then they're out of it. Really wasn't that dramatic. There's only one scene, which is one of my favorite scenes, where it felt like there was a lot of danger. And that was the stampede, where mm -hmm. all the animals actually run over them and they're hitting yeah. the log. There's not a lot of tension. 
or no. suspense, even though they're supposed to be. Do you have any favorite scenes? Scene where the big the end came up on the screen. I really enjoyed <laughs> that. <laughs> I will mention a couple myself. I did like the scenes at the Batusi village, not necessarily the conflict there. The village was very impressive. You know, I don't know how accurate it was, but the architecture was incredible. They had textiles and artistry and dyes, and they made an independent existence with farming and husbandry. This was a very advanced civilization. They were just cut off from the rest of the world, but I was quite impressed. There was a scene where Elizabeth steps on an alligator. There I also felt a bit of a danger. And there's a yeah, story there's a story you refer to that I'll talk about later about natives who have this game where they just stage each other around in a circle. The directors were Compton Bennett and Andrew Martin. Since Compton Bennett was replaced halfway through, the official reason then given was Bennett felt ill, but there were rumors that Bennett wasn't getting along with some of the cast, especially Stuart Granger. Neither of them are particularly well-known. They had successful movies, but nobody really thinks of them today as top tour filmmakers. Most people, even those who are really into film, probably know who they are. MGM made one or two big overseas spectacles like this a year. Partly it might be for tax reasons, because if you could go to Europe or another country, you could get a lot of money invested because of the way taxes were in those countries as well as taxes here. Mm. So that's why you have a lot of these big and spectacular overseas movies made during this period. But Martin was especially known as the second unit director. He worked on things like the chariot race and Ben-Hur. So in the end, he might have been a much better choice for director here because it's the second unit that is very important in movies like this. Uh, The ones that do the action scenes, the ones that do the crowd scenes that are responsible for getting shots of the animals and things like that. So quite possibly, I can't say he might be responsible for the animal stampede, which is one of the more exciting scenes of the movie. Yeah, that really was. It was a good scene. They allude to a possible animal attack multiple times, one of them being with a rhino and another, of course, being with some elephants. And if you care for animals, let's say, and you know how endangered elephants are now and and you see him taking people out on safari to shoot and kill elephants, him having to put one down to help finish it off. And then not to kill the other ones, just shoot and scare them away. And I get that they were trying to make him look like a good guy and he's just doing this for money. But in that case, go full scoundrel with him and then let's see a redeeming arc with him. But we didn't get that. Yes, this can be seen as a transition film in some ways. And here they try to play it off where they can have the elephant be shot. And then in the next scene, he says, I'm not going to do this anymore. I just can't shoot these animals anymore. And I go, well, okay, you know, (laughs) whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. The screenplay is by Helen Deutsch. And both films, it's interesting to note, had female writers, which might be very important here because there's no female lead in the book. This was added for the movie which was not unusual at the time. During the golden age of Hollywood, you tended to always find a way to put a love interest in the movie, no matter whether it was in the source material or even whether it quite... Right, yeah, that was interesting because I didn't think it worked. When you said that earlier, I was like, oh, dang, that makes sense then. You'll see it in like Journey to the Center of the Earth, where Mm -hmm. in the book there is no female lead, but in that one she also finances the expedition and say, I'm going to go along. And you'll have unusual things like versions of Moby Dick, where suddenly there's a female in there but you get to 60s 70s 80s suddenly the female audience was that it's important so you get movies with very ugly portrayals of women or you get movies where there is no female love interest or they play very minor parts like in the french connection Mm -hmm. 
And there were complaints about the time. Women were saying, why aren't you making more movies with women, with good parts for women? And they were going, well, the men are buying the tickets, so that's who we're making the movies for. There was a really big change at this time. A well-needed change, too, I, I might add, because it does add for a lot of variety and for a lot more fun moments, particularly comical moments, especially as you get into the 60s and the, and the later in the 50s as well how Cary Grant will bounce off of a lead female actor and how well they can work together and how it comedically puts them off their game in a way demasculates them a little bit. You can see the humor there. The women enjoy it and the men enjoy it. So that it was a definite change that was needed to have more female characters in films, for sure. There was a different philosophy about the relationship of the sexes, I think, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And if you've ever read George Bernard Shaw, a lot of his philosophy about men and women, there was an alpha male and an alpha female. And the purpose of the plot in the movie was to get the alpha female and the alpha male together. And that's what was driving the world. It's how the world works. You start getting in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where you actually no longer have alpha male being leads in movies. The men didn't consider women to be important in moving the world forward. They were just adjuncts. They were just there to have sex with, keep the house. But in the 30s, 40s, 50s, this was the way the universe worked. The alpha male finding the alpha female. Yeah. Now, at the end, the alpha female maybe knocked down a bit because even from George Bernard Shaw's point of view, the alpha female was just superior to every male that wasn't an alpha male, but she was still inferior to the alpha male. But the book is also considered to be one of the very first in what's called the lost world genre. You'll get that also after this and such writers as Edgar Rice Burroughs and Arthur Conan Doyle, Kipling Lovecraft, and even today you get it in Michael Crichton. Quatermain is often considered the basic blueprint from which Indiana Jones is derived, even though in this particular film he might be a bit dull. Mm-hmm. Rather dull, yeah. It also might help to look at the film in context of the time that it was made, because the film takes place in the 1890s. But when this film was made, colonialism was coming to a close. Britain had lost almost every one of its colonies. So it wasn't unusual to make films that sort of glorified their past as colonialists. It was sort of a nostalgia. Add to that, World War II had made the world a lot more cynical. So even though there's a romance here, it's much more existential. It's about a man who's sees the world in terms of surviving, that death is always there waiting for him. He's just living against time. He's lived longer as a hunter and a safari guide than everybody else in the business. For him, life doesn't really seem to have any purpose. Quatermain describes that game the natives have where they just chase each other around in circles for no particular purpose. It just passes the time. It's a very French existentialism that Quatermain decides that life does have meaning when he falls in love with the Deborah Carr character. But But it's also trying to improve its look at the local Native population in these films. I mean, you'll see films in the 30s that are just really awful. And even in the 40s, they're really awful in the way they describe or they dramatize the local population. The book apparently is supposed to be much worse than the movie is. You know, the movie... Quatermain treats them with respect. The Watusi tribe is treated in a very different way than would be usual. A ceremonial dance at the village is known as the Tutsi Lion Dance. It's still in practice. Stuart Granger speaks actual Kiswahili, and apparently he does a rather good job of it. Uh, oh. It tries to be very accurate in the way it looks at the indigenous culture. They use local extras. The movies are improving. They still have a long way to go. The book is highly critical in the 
way that it describes the non-Europeans. The nonfiction book, Decolonizing the Mind, Kenyan author Nogugi Wathiongo refers to Haggard as one of the canonical authors in primary and secondary school they read when it comes to the geniuses of racism. Oh, fun. But Helen Deutsch was a very successful screenwriter. She worked on a lot of big movies like Kim and the unsequel Monty Brown and I'll Cry Tomorrow and National Velvet. She ran out with sort of a bang. Her last movie was the now camp classic Valley of the Dolls, which you've never seen it. You almost have to. It is a train wreck and you just can't look away from it. And we have talked about the acting. Yeah, Stuart Granger, he was a huge star at the time, very popular in England, not the most exciting person here. Deborah Carr is a bit better. She was one of the finer actors of the Golden Age period of Hollywood. This was the kind of role she usually played, very staid and even repressed proper English women who somehow seemed very sexual. She was often a prude who had to have that prudishness ripped from her. Um, She's much more sexual because she internalizes all the sexuality. She can't reveal it. But her character is kind of annoying. Um, yeah. Joan Wilder has more of an excuse to complain since she's being chased and targeted by all these people. But she catches on much more quickly that she needs to be strong and not just be saved. The cinematography is by Robert Surtees. And it's very beautiful, except I suspect that it may have faded a bit. Technicolor films at that time have often faded and the reds seem a bit more prominent. So I suspect if they restored it, it would look a lot more vibrant and look more like it was when it was first released. It still has some very beautiful moments and it's well shot. The cinematographer is Robert C. Teese and he is considered one of the greatest cinematographer of all times. He's received 16 Oscar nominations. He's won three and he's done everything from King Solomon's Mind to Ben Hur to The Graduate to The Last Picture Show. And the music is by Misha Smolyansky, but there really isn't much of it, except at the beginning. Most of the background is just made up of drums and other tribal instruments. Right, right. The beginning and then uh, I think the end, there's some music there, too. Right. I could totally see all that stuff you were saying. That's funny. With that, here's more information about the film. It cost $2.3 million to make and made 15.1 at the box office, which made it MGM's most successful film of 1950 and the second highest grossing film of that year in the U.S. Samson wow. and Delight was number one. And the film was third most popular at the British box office in 1951. Robert L. Surtees won the Academy Award for Best Cinematography for Color, while Rolf E. Winters and Conrad A. Nerving won for Best Film Editing. The film was nominated for Best Picture, but this was the year of All About Eve, and the only thing that could possibly have beaten All About Eve that year was Sunset Boulevard and All About Eve won. Now you're talking about Deborah Carr's hair, and it cuts to her sending with a perfectly coiffed hairstyle. And that got a big laugh at the initial screenings of the film. So they thought about removing the scene, but then they couldn't figure out any other way to explain Keir's change of hairstyle. So they just left mm-hmm. the scene in. <laughs> this marked the first time the Batusi tribe allowed themselves to be filmed. The named Alan Quatermain as an interesting etymology. Alan means harmony, stone, or noble. Quatermain means four hands, and it indicates someone who, though they only have two hands, has the skill to do the work of four hands. The location footage in this film, especially the various animals, was reused as stock footages for dozens of films in the 50s and later, including Tarzan the Ape Man in 1959, Watusi also in 1959, and the 1973 version of Trader Horn. The scene at the start of the film where Elephant is shot is sadly genuine. This is according to IMDb. But it wasn't a big game shoot. It was in one of East Africa's game parks where, unbelievable as it may seem today, there were too many elephants for the environment and therefore some had to be called by professional hunters. What nobody had expected and what has never been captured in film before or since was that the other elephants in the herd would come to the aid of their shot companion and try to support him. 
There have been at least six versions of the book, most notably this one, one in 1937, and the one in 1985. So with that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. I have a couple here. One of them came out, I think it was 2007. It's another Michael Douglas film. It's another film about him searching for some type of treasure called King of California. It's a small independent film. Didn't get much traction in theaters, but I found it to be delightful. It's very heartfelt. It's about him in his older years trying to figure out how he can provide for his daughter. She's been released from the institution, if I recall. The other one that I would recommend is the Brendan Fraser-led film with Rachel Weisz of The Mummy. I think that came out in 90, I want to say 99. That was a lot of fun, very similar in a lot of ways to Romancing the Stone, particularly with the male-female lead dynamic of them butting heads all the time and then eventually falling for each other on this adventure. And if you haven't gone on the roller coaster ride at Universal Studios in Hollywood, I highly recommend you do that while they still have it there. It's my favorite ride at Universal, and that just makes it all the more sweeter when you watch that film. Fantastic. Well, I've chosen three movies revolving around diamonds. Let Her Never Sent is a 1960 Russian film in which four geologists are sent into Siberia to look for diamonds for the Russian government, but find themselves trapped there by a forest fire. Terror by Night is probably my favorite of the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, Sherlock Holmes movies. And at Holmes has been hired protect the star of Rhodesia, a valuable diamond with a cursed history, as its owner takes it to her home in Scotland. But when the owner's son is murdered and the diamond disappears, Holmes has a mystery to solve. Mm. Leonardo DiCaprio and Shimon Honsu star in 2006 Blood Diamond, about three people's fight to find and own a priceless diamond that a mine worker managed to hide from his ruthless bosses. Also, I will point out that episode 27 of Pop Art covers two films about the race for jewels, Guy Ritchie's Snatch and Mel Brooks's The Twelve Chairs. So what is next? What should we be expecting from you? We're going to continue on with our live podcast that we do pretty much every Mondays at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. It'll be 10.30 Eastern time. Recently, we interviewed Gary K. Wolf, who ironically, since we were talking about Romancing the Stone, Zemeckis, he also directed Roger Rabbit. Gary K. Wolf had written Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You can find that on our Rumble Spoon Productions YouTube page under the Real Short Box, where we're going to be doing a lot of fun viewer interactive where you can vote for certain characters to beat other characters in fights and battles and popularity contest. We've got one with the Olympics coming up. We've got one which is the, the battle of the product placement mascots, Count Chocula fighting the Keebler Elves. We've got a couple short films that we're working on. Did one a while back called The Great SK. It's been years and years and years. And we shot so much footage for sequels to this and those are starting to be put together so we're going to have the great Nescape coming down the pike uh, hopefully relatively soon and that is about these two characters in the great Escape making their way to Scotland and error ensues we tried to do it like uh, uh, Laurel and Hardy Abbott and Costello type of uh, bumbling fools making their way across the globes oh great for me, I'll just my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Kastner Screenplay Consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. I have published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I have also published a second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. And I am an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous episode was with blogger and film enthusiast Rishabh Vashistha for the Valentine's Day episode. 
where we talked Warm Bodies and I Walked with a Zombie, two films about romance and the living dead. The next episode will be with podcaster Nick Rehack, where we will talk The Shining and The Innkeepers, two films about haunted hotels. They check in, but will they check out? So with that, I want to thank you, Donald, very much for being a guest on my show. Well, thank you for having me, Howard. It's been great and very honored to be here for the 75th episode.